UC Berkeley Law received 6,825 applications last year for its entering class that started this year. The 1L class has 279 members. It's really hard to get into Berkeley Law. Let's find out how you can do so in this interview with its admissions dean. Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Acceptance founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams. Thanks for joining me for the 504th episode of Admissions Trade Talk. Are you applying to law school this cycle? Are you planning ahead to apply to law school next year or later? Are you competitive at your target programs? Except as law school admissions quiz can give you a quick reality check. Just go to exhibit.com slash law dash quiz, complete the quiz, and you'll not only get your assessment, but tips on how to improve your chances of acceptance. Plus, it's all free. Again, take the short quiz at exhibit.com slash law dash quiz to obtain your free assessment. Now for today's interview, I'm delighted to have on Admission Straight Talk, Kristen Thies Alvarez, Dean of Admissions and Financial Aid at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. Dean Thies Alvarez earned her BA in Rhetoric and Native American Studies from UC Berkeley and her JD from Stanford Law, graduating from Stanford in 2000. She has been with Berkeley Law in different roles since 2007 and became Dean of Admissions and Financial Aid in 2018. In addition to her duties at Berkeley, she is a member of the Board of Trustees and Chair of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee for the Law School Admissions Council. Dean Alvarez, welcome to Admissions Straight Talk. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Delighted to speak with you today. Can you, just to start, give an overview of the more distinctive elements of the Berkeley Law JD program? Sure. Um, it's a little bit challenging to encapsulate them. I mean, we're relatively practiced at giving sort of these elevator pitches, but I will try to hit some of them. And I imagine through the rest of the questions, others may emerge. I like to start with the first year because frankly, it's a point of distinction between us and a lot of our peer schools. We are firm believers that there are a lot of law schools that give a really great education and it starts to become about fit, where you want to spend three years and what in particular you want to get out of it. So one of the places where we are different than people is what we will allow people to do in the first year. So you may have heard that all the curriculum in the first year was set and you just sort of suffer through it and then you get to do fun stuff in your second and third year. And that's not the case probably in many places, but certainly not the case at Berkeley. We made a really distinct choice, I think many years ago, that if we're going to recruit and we do like to recruit students who have a strong track record of engagement, then we should allow them to be engaged and to do what they care about most. And that that actually doesn't take away from, but augments their experience. So we will allow people to join any of the journals except California Law Reviews. So there are 12 of them as a first-year student. We'll allow students to get involved in our pro bono program, which has a number of distinct aspects, but most well-recognized is the student-initiated legal projects, which are hands-on legal work supervised by attorneys and community partners, but where 
first year law students are actually doing things that make a difference, like representing someone who was in the process of seeking asylum. And there are over 40 of them this year. And we also will let people try out for the competition team. So if you're someone who's really passionate about moot court mock trial and you plan to be a litigator and you want to keep doing that, you can do that in your first year. Similarly, the curriculum is actually not nearly as fixed as it used to be. We went through curricular reform a few years ago. And we made the decision to remove uh, property, which is typically one of the core required courses, not only as a first year requirement, but as a graduation requirement. Mm -hmm. And we also took a unit from torts and reduced it by a unit to add a unit, which sort of equates to hours in legal education, to the legal research and writing program so that people were getting more practice, developing more skills and having more sort of examples of their writing also to enter the employment market with. That meant functionally that there are three required courses in legal research and writing in the fall, and that in the spring there's only one remaining required course, plus written and oral advocacy. Many students will choose to take constitutional law, which is a graduation requirement, but even if you do, you still have remaining units to take an elective. And frankly, you could take two or three, depending on the number of units. So that has really opened things up, and we had a lot of interesting conversations about it, but I do think it speaks to the fact that we both like people who are highly specialized, you know, people who want to go into patent law and don't need to wait out for the first year to get involved in the things that they care about. And also people who are uh, very much sort of creative explorers looking to put together different aspects of the curriculum and have them be informed by one another from the very beginning. Beyond that, I mean, I, I think there's an incredible breadth and depth of curriculum here. The faculty actually enjoy teaching, which it's hard to express and sometimes sounds like, you know, a little too marketing, but the reality is, I, I, I think it's fair to say that and that it's fair to say that's not always true everywhere. I think Dean Chemerinsky, our dean, is a really great example as someone who's an incredible leader and thinker, but also who loves, loves, loves to teach and teaches constitutional law every spring, to generally to first-year students, and uh, usually teaches either criminal procedure or First Amendment law in the fall to 2Ls and 3Ls. Um, so that really sets the tone. The only other thing I'll say is that I think that the education and the curriculum and the opportunities at Berkeley really emphasize experiential education and interdisciplinary education. So beyond the pro bono program, we have 14 clinics, six in-house, eight in community. Um, we have a really robust field placements program that includes opportunities to go to the Hague for a semester or yeah. to go to DC or to do something along those lines. You could also do it part-time and locally while taking classes. And so it's sort of infused. We have a ninth circuit practicum. Um, and there's just all these places that you can really take what you've learned in the classroom and continue to do that, but also practice it in some way. And then we really fundamentally believe that most of the complex legal problems in the world are not going to be solved sort of by a single discipline, if that makes sense. So it makes sense then to build yourself an, uh, a set of courses that include environmental law and racial justice and criminal law and international law, right? Because there are problems that just are cross-national complex things like immigration driven by global climate change. So those are the kinds of thinkers that we hope to enroll. And then that's the kind of education that we hope to provide. Does the flexibility in curriculum enhance students' abilities to get uh, even internships between the first and second year? Potentially. I mean, I think if there are firms that are sort of highly specialized and looking specifically, we have a very strong law and technology or intellectual property program, for example. And so if there are firms and 
where adjacent to Silicon Valley. And also there's a huge biotech hub in San Francisco and in the East Bay. So if there are firms that know that they're looking to hire people who are going to be patent prosecutors or, you know, something along those lines, then they're very interested in getting their hands on those students quite early. And it does help that the students have had some intro to IP, intro to patent, or intro to something that they can take in their first semester before they go off into a law firm to learn how to be a summer associate, which is a unique experience unto itself. Okay. When I was preparing for the call, I saw that UC Berkeley had some unusual grading practices. Now I went, I got my MBA at UCLA and I remember that there were some joined JD MBA students and they were in UCLA's business school was, and I think still is known for his very collaborative, cooperative kind of culture. He said the law school was entirely different. <laughs> that was a long time ago. It might've changed since then. I'm not saying anything about UCLA law today, but from what I read online, the grading system is supposed to enhance collaboration, cooperation, et cetera, and create that nice culture at UC Berkeley Law. Could you touch on it, please? Yeah, it is fairly different. There are some other schools that have their versions of sort of alternative grading, which I, I would broadly describe as just non-A through F. Okay. Um, so you're still getting evaluated. I, I sometimes say we, we do give out grades, not hugs, right? It's <laughs> but, but you actually do get feedback. So it's still on a curve. And the way that it works is not tied to the A through F system. So you'll never have a GPA or a class rank, but essentially the top 10% of any given class will get an HH, which is high honors. The next 30% will get an H, which is honors. And then the remainder of people will get a pass. It is possible to get a restricted pass or a low pass or a non-pass. It's extremely unusual. So just to be clear, that does that does exist okay. in the world. There uh, is accountability, in other words. There is accountability. Um, yes. the, so I, I, I think it, you know, I have some theories about this and, and sort of its effect on culture. I don't know that it changes the culture in the way people think it does. So how people go like, ah, oh, you know, I don't have to worry about grades. I'll just be nice now. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't think that that's how it actually works. Um, people worked really hard to get here and they don't sort of stop being, you know, people who are very interested in working very hard and doing really well. And obviously there's a lot of benchmarks along the way, things like summer jobs and clerkships and all of those kinds of opportunities and people are fairly focused on. But what I do think is that if you get into Berkeley, you get into a lot of great schools, usually. There's a lot of overlap with many of our peer schools. And as I mentioned in the beginning, I think it comes down a lot to fit. So if you've had an experience where you were at an extremely competitive undergraduate school and you sort of are like, well, I've done that. I don't particularly want to do it again. One of the variables you start to look at is the sort of culture and community variable, um, which is really best understood if you go to visit, just to be clear, rather than listening to anyone like me talk about it. But if that is important to you as you weigh it against things like, net cost or placement or bar pass or something else, then you choose based on it. And you, if you choose based on it, you typically hold it as a value. So it becomes this shared value of collaboration. We pick Berkeley for a different experience. Therefore, we work hard to create a different experience. There's not a lot we as administrators could do to make people, you know, be kind. I, I try to pick kind people um, when I'm admitting them, but the, it's sort of a self-reinforcing system. What I will say about the grades, I mean, I, I think that it has a little bit of relationship to those first year opportunities I talked about, because if you were incredibly stressed about trying to be in like the top 10% of your class and everything, you probably would spend most of your time in the library, um, you know, anxious and reading, and you still will spend most of your time in the library. But if you're sort of like, well, I'm not so worried about like 
how I'm going to do in torts. I'm, I love my crim class. I love this. It, it creates a little bit of breathing room for people where they go, well, I'd like to practice. I'd like to join a journal because I'd like to really work on, you know, the citations part of this. And um, I think it'll be helpful in my career search, et cetera, or, I'm not enjoying much at all about the first year curriculum, but I came here to do workers' rights and labor work. And so I'm going to get involved in some of those projects through pro bono, and it's going to remind me kind of of my why. So when I'm struggling in a particular class or, you know, just with law school and why I chose to come, which is kind of an existential crisis many people go through, regardless of their level of commitment or interest, they have a why, right? Because they have projects that they're working on that are outside of reading cases from the 1800s. Okay. Thank you. That was a great answer. All right. The big news in law school admissions. (laughs) Big news. There's no big news. (laughs) This past month or so, I mean... (laughs) Yeah, but it was a pretty newsy November is what I'm calling it. Well, has been, well, there's two pieces of big news. One is the ABA moving to cease requiring an admissions test. And the other piece of big news is law schools withdrawing from U.S. news rankings or, or refraining from supplying reports to U.S. Sure. news. Now, let's let's deal first with the ABA and the, LC, and the test requirement. You were quoted as saying that removing the test requirement could actually increase disparities in law school admissions. If you were correctly quoted, (laughs) I'm assuming you were, how do you see that happening? Could you touch on it, please? Yeah. So if anyone, you know, can't fall asleep at night, they can go read the (laughs) comments to the American Bar Association. And one of them was written, well, co-written by me and a colleague at the University of Wisconsin. And I, it is long. It's, it's, there's a nice synopsis at the beginning. I just got that one quote. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's about 19 pages long. Um, So, um, and it's 19 pages long because I approached this question of do we need a test? What's the role of the test? With an attempt to be actually quite open-minded about it. So frequently we get cited as people who are opposed to getting rid of the test and who are on the board of LSAC, right? Like because they, people <laughs> assume that, that somehow we're out here on a campaign for the law school admissions council and for the test. And I spent a lot of the summer, frankly, just doing independent research because the reality is I hadn't thought a lot about it. I actually have high school senior going through the college application process right now. And we're dealing with this sort of what does test optional mean there? So it's been an interesting time. So I did a ton of my own research and sort of wrote this lengthy memo um, with footnotes and all and citations. Yeah. Citations. Um, but, and I think there's some, there's some places where it's a close call, right. But what really became problematic for me and as someone who reads thousands of applications every year, and I think that's where some of this starts to get dicey because a lot of people are making rules who don't actually do this work and, it's different. One of the things that became true for me is, and that the research seemed to bear out, is that there's just as much disparity in GPA. And that that disparity in GPA is compounded by limited access for some people to more elite institutions. So you kind of get the double whammy of you know, a, a GPA that might not be an exceptionally high GPA and a GPA that might not be high or is high at an institution where there's likelihood of bias in terms of people's sense of the reputation of that institution. So there's that. I mean, a lot of people have made this argument a, lo- a different line, which is a little problematic to me because it starts to butt up against some theories that I'm not a big fan of around, you know, we should wait and see how people actually perform in college who've been admitted test optional. And there is emerging research that shows that the students who have gone on, first of all, were not 
were admitted test optional undergrad were not more racially diverse or just slightly for some groups. And that actually there were fewer people admitted who were low income and first generation college. So it actually hurt some people while maybe just slightly helping some other people. And there's, and then there's emerging research that maybe they're not on this, the attrition rates aren't the same and the graduation rates might not be the same. And I worry a little bit about that suggesting something around mismatch and I, which I really struggle with. So my interest is more from a reader's perspective and there's not a we're doing a holistic read there's only sort of two places where there are numbers <laughs> one is UGPA and one is a test score if you remove test scores from the equation I don't know that schools are at least initially going to be very adept at figuring out how to do something like score personal statements or score interviews or add numbers back in, which is when you're dealing with an applicant pool of my size, which is helpful. And that will create a sense of reliance on undergraduate GPA. And that's just affected by so many things and becomes really problematic, um, especially as you put the, as I said, the questions of prestige together with the questions of performance. Um, there's just a lot of schools that I read that I don't know the school very well. Um, and I was just telling someone as I was reading binding early decision applications, I was like, this is what people don't understand. There were as many people or more admitted because of their test score um, as there mm. might have been who were not admitted because of their test score. So I had someone from like a small Christian college in uh, you know, the middle of the country. I don't know much about it. I looked at the transcript really carefully, I read the letters of recommendation really carefully. I still was sort of like, I'm not sure exactly what this means. I've never seen an applicant from the school. They had an exceptionally high LSAT score. So the first and fundamental question of, do I think they could be academically successful through the combination of their performance at undergrad and LSAT? I felt fine about that. And then obviously moved on to things of, in terms of other qualifications. And that going away is going to be a challenge. Right, right. No, I, I, from my perspective, and I've also read thousands of applications at this point in time, not, not as many per year as you, but definitely a, a lot. There are definitely times when the test is going to be the piece of ev evidence. Yeah. What if somebody worked their way through undergraduate college, even yep. at a, you know, at a public university, Ivy League, uh, a public Ivy, Yep, they're going to have struggled with yep. grades. But if they have the time, they, they focus for a little while on the test, they might test great. Yeah. I mean, and we often are like, you know, it's uh, when we talk about applications, I sort of say that applicants perceive this as a three-part test, which is like, do I have a good enough LSAT score? Do I have a good enough GPA? Do I have good enough extracurriculars? Which is not at all kind of the endeavor that we're engaged in. And the first question is, do we think you can come and do the work? The next one is, what will you contribute beyond being a good student? And the third is, are you a good fit for our institution? So we're very careful then to say, like, even with GPA, it's much more complicated than that, right? It's academic record. It's academic history as an indicator and predictor of future success. And so there's all kinds of things. GPA is nestled in uh, a collection of factors that include rigor of course of study, age of grades, um, major obligations outside, Division I athletes, full-time employees, people who are single parents, people who are re-entry students, and so on. Also explanations people provide. They had a medical emergency. They had a death in the family. There's all of this sort of juicy context, right? And 
Yeah, trend, absolutely. Um, and other kinds of patterns, you know, like they have a high GPA, but they took two classes pass fail every single semester. So they were only, you know, I mean, like there's just yeah. all kinds of possible yeah. stuff. And people somehow don't think that's true for LSAT. Right. And it's, of course, it's true for LSAT. Um, it's why we have a prompt to say, if you don't believe that your test scores are indicative of your potential, tell us why and what is, what should I be relying on instead in your record? So again, there's, you know, multiple test scores, patterns of cancellation, but there's now things that we don't see, which are problematic, like use of score preview, use of test prep programs, et cetera, et cetera. And that can be trickier. I, I, there was interesting, I watched the debate at, um, at the American Bar Association Council when they were discussing yeah. this and that someone, you know, raised the issue of why, why do we need to do this? And, and I, we raised this in our memo. Why do we need to do this when you could, any school could just decide to weight the test less, right? Like we're told to use a test, but we're not told how to use that test or how much importance to give it. So a school that really wants to radically depart from this idea of being driven by tests or that is really disturbed by what is a demonstrated score gap for racial minorities could simply say, we, we require the LSAT per the ABA um, standards, and we just don't give it a lot of weight. And so the reason people don't do that, which is a segue into your next question, I think largely has to do with U.S. News and World Report. And there was this strange piece of that conversation where someone said, well, well, maybe this will change because they were referencing the, the changes that schools that had announced that they weren't going to participate um, in U.S. News and World Report. And it seems very strange to me to change something about the admissions process and requirements that schools and admissions professionals are saying is helpful to them because we don't like the behavior of a third party and the influence of the third party on the schools themselves and the pressure it creates for us to emphasize something we don't think should be emphasized. So part of why I think it's exciting to see schools depart from US News and World Report is just because it's sort of taking what we have griped about for years <laughs> and actually putting it out into the world. Um, and I think if we do more of that and sort of lead courageously, that there's a way to keep test scores a part of the process, but lead courageously in terms of how we treat and regard those scores. But we are where we are. I, I'm a realist. So we have two years to figure this out. And the new rule, assuming it gets through the right. council, House of Delegates, will be implemented in application season 2526 so enter in class 2026 got it all right now as you mentioned <laughs> you know your berkeley law is no longer participating in the us news rankings it was actually one of the first schools mm -hmm. to withdraw i think right after harvard and yale or yale and harvard despite it's consistent high ranking in the rankings. Mm -hmm. Now, are you? I, I gather you're celebrating the fact that you won't have to fill out those rankings reports. Um, oh, selfishly, yeah. I just got a week back of my life. But okay, that, that was not the motivation. <laughs> no, no, I know that. Any misgivings? Oh, sure. I mean, I I think um, you know we can't control what U.S. News and World Report does. Right. And I think U.S. News and World Report has already said pretty clearly and in public that they're going to continue to rank schools. Right, um, and they're I probably going to continue to use the LSAT as a factor. Yes, we're a public institution, so a lot of our information is public. And in fact, we are going to form a committee to think about how we can represent on our website, using some public-facing dashboards and other tools, a lot of this information, because we agree and feel that the consumer information is important and that ABA 509 reports are helpful, but it might be useful to sort of visualize that data in a different way that could be useful or to provide more data, frankly, than we would otherwise provide elsewhere. So, you know, we're, 
most of it's going to be available. I, I think there are some schools right now that maybe would withdraw if not for the fact that they think the thing that helps them the most is per pupil expenditures, which is probably the only piece of data US News and World Report really can't get its hands on without the school volunteering it. So if you're a school where you're like, mm, you know, our reputational ranking and all these other things are not so great, but our per pupil, per pupil expenditures are exceptionally high, that's what has pushed us into the top 20. I can understand some real reticence to 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 leave. You know, I, I mean, I think ultimately we ours was not a decision and I, i'll speak for myself but it, you know for, from my perspective and i was an advocate for non-participation it, it was a decision that didn't have to do with strategy right like i think if we had gone down the strategy wormhole of like how does this help us how might this hurt us what are our peers doing how will we then we're still living in the world where rankings reign supreme because then i'm still waking up in mid-march going oh my gosh like I'm going to live and die by what someone at a, that's not printed magazine anymore, someone at a website <laughs> um, thinks <laughs> of my school, which is just silly. And so part of it was this desire to sort of not be in that world so much anymore. And to understand, I mean, we are ranked by many entities that are not US News and World Report. Uh, there are rankings on specialties. There are rankings for people who have blogs. There are rankings for people who are consultants. There are ranking, I mean, there's just so many ways. And, and that's always gonna be true, but we were sort of imbuing this particular ranking with some special significance because we we're volunteering data that wouldn't otherwise be available. And then we were railing against, like sort of complaining about it. That just seems absurd, frankly. I do think like we didn't make a forever decision. Right. And I, don't, I don't know that how other schools have thought about that. Speaking only for myself, I do feel like even if, you know, U.S. News World Report quote did everything we wanted, which I don't know what that entire list looks like, but, you know, valued loan repayment assistance programs, fully valued school employed people doing public interest work and so on and so forth. Um, I still personally have an issue with the fact that the methodology is entirely opaque, um, that the only way we can see sort of what and reverse engineer what analysis was applied is by purchasing for a fee, the data, the full data set. And that it changes from year to year. Because to me, if you're providing a tool to help people really understand clearly with transparency how to compare schools, you would need to keep the methodology stable for chunks of time and see how schools perform against that methodology. And if you change it every single year, yeah. it doesn't actually do that anymore. So I would love, personally love to see um, a commitment to hold the method to make the methodology more transparent and then to hold it stable for a period of time and convene a group of deans or leaders in legal education to help inform changes periodically um, every three or five years to that methodology to reflect a changing environment. I'm not going to get what I want. <laughs> Nobody is asking me either. So that's totally fine. Um, but uh, but it's been really fascinating. And I, I just want to say I really applaud the, the deans at Yale and at Harvard as well for going out front on this issue. Um, we were the third school. There have been many schools that have followed both public and private, but I, I do think that our colleagues at those schools, had they not taken this initial step, step um, and recognizing they're in a unique position to do so, right? Yale's never not been one. Um, so what it, it's absurd if US News World Report suddenly ranks them 12. Harvard is Harvard. Right, exactly. And so I I just wanna give credit where credit is due, which is that, that, that sort of, um, 
foresight and leadership has really, I think, already been transformative. I agree. Definitely been transformative. It will be interesting to see if U.S. News tries to make some accommodation to woo the schools back or if more schools jump on the bag wagon. It will also be interesting to see if, let's say, colleges and universities, business schools, medical schools, those admissions deans don't like the rankings any more than, yeah. than you folks do. Yeah. Um, Someone asked whether or not, like we thought, you know, somehow this was like a negotiation tactic and the law schools were going to get, I, I actually don't think that U.S. News and World Report cares a ton about law schools, right? Um, but it would be really problematic if undergraduate institutions chose not to participate um, or business schools, uh, as particularly schools that draw to from a more international audience. And so I think to the extent that anyone is worried that it might become a cross-discipline trend. Uh, that's what's likely to bring to bring folks to the negotiation table and not just sort of us, you know, mm -hmm. drawing a line in the sand. Got it. All right. Let's turn to the application itself, okay? Uh, this has been fascinating, but I think we, we're going to yeah, focus a little bit now, okay? I know the formal application deadline is February 15th, and the show will air, this show, this interview will air in early January. For listeners then in early January, is it too late to apply? Are they at a disadvantage applying close to the, closer to the deadline? It's a great question. It's a question I get all the time. It's a question that's directly related to understanding and misunderstanding of what rolling admissions means. And we are a school that employs rolling admission, which is to say we don't wait until February 16th to crack open 6,000 applications and try to read them in the next four weeks, which would simply be impossible. Uh, we start reading them as they come in and we start making decisions as they come in. And so, I mean, I think people are right to suspect that like as a pure numbers game, um, their quote unquote chances look worse in February. And the reason is just, you can picture the lines on a graph, right? In September, we have very few applicants and all, you know, 800, 900 spots that we're going to see tickets we're going to offer to the show. Um, and over time we start handing those tickets out. And then um, the, the line for applicants isn't a straight line up. It's more like a, a bumpy line that has a lot to do with LSAT administration and score releases. But what is absolutely true is that we get a spike at the end of the cycle as people approach the deadline. So, you know, if your odds are, you know, 100 apps and 800 spots in September, that looks pretty good. And if your odds are, you know, 2000 apps and 100 spots in February, that doesn't look so good. We would be terrible at our job if we just were like, well, <laughs> we have an application deadline on February 15th, but we're just done admitting people January 15th or something along those lines. So we know that there are good applicants that are coming. We know that there are people who, you know, something happened in their, their test administration in November, and they really feel like they need to take the January test to show us what their true ability is. We know that there are people who um, don't have access to the same kind of pre-law advising that explains some of this to them and the benefits of applying early. And we absolutely have space in the class <laughs> in, in February. <laughs> Um, it would also be very silly of me to uh, admit someone who I didn't think was a great person for Berkeley simply because they applied in October or to deny someone who was amazing simply because they applied in February. Um, so I feel like when you zoom out to sort of the 10,000 foot view, it, it there is an impact. But when I'm in an application, in a given person's application, there isn't an impact. I mean, if I read someone, say they got assigned to me on the 15th and I was reading them on the 20th or something, and I was like, well, we, God, we have like no space. And they were amazing. And I was like, I would be like, well, 
Dean Chemerinsky, we're going to be a person over because <laughs> you know, because we'd want them. And so in that sense, I don't think people need to stress about it impacting them directly. In the world of law admissions, there's only so many things that people can control. You can't control what you did as an undergrad and what your LSAC says your GPA is. You can control when you apply. And so what we tend to uh, tell people is that because that's something that you can control and because there's at least the potential for a little bit of benefit earlier in the cycle, we encourage you to apply or at the earliest point at which you have your strongest application prepared. And that's really the general advice. And just to add on one other thing, because there's a second part of this question, which is, are we going to run out of money? Um, right. So if I apply in February, I might have no scholarship. Absolutely not. Um, we do both initial gift aid offers and a process called reconsideration. So even if you didn't get an initial gift aid offer, it wouldn't be because of the time you applied. But if you didn't, you could still request reconsideration, which doesn't even open until mid-March after our admit weekend. And that's a separate set of money. And we sort of plan for these this phased approach. So there are absolutely scholarships available to someone who applied February 15th and got admitted. Okay, great. Um, now, Berkeley Law has a binding early decision program. I'm just shifting the conversation a little bit here. Who should apply via the binding early decision program? And does it have a higher acceptance rate than the regular decision? It's a timely question. We sent out decisions yesterday. <laughs> um, and I think to many people's consternation, we sent them out at about 4 p.m. Pacific. Oh. <laughs> uh, it was apparently quite stressful. The phone was ringing a lot. Who should apply to binding early decision? I mean, so let me say this. Our binding early decision program, it requires some things. It requires you to apply by mid-November. It requires you to have taken an LSAT or a test no later than sort of October, so we can get your scores in. It requires you to write a Y Berkeley essay, and it requires you to sign a binding early decision agreement, <laughs> signifying that you actually understand what you're entering into, which is to say that if you are accepted, you are firmly committed to attend Berkeley, you must withdraw your application from everywhere else where you've applied, even if you haven't received a decision. On the flip side, I feel really strongly that one of the more inequitable things in admissions in general is binding early decisions programs that really do take a fair number of people, particularly at the undergraduate level, but do not offer financial, non-loan financial support at that time. And so when I launched this program a few years ago, we launched it with a $25,000 scholarship award. We didn't just make that number up. $25,000 per year, $75,000 total. Um, that number was tied kind of to the average award of anyone admitted the previous year. So I could say with a straight face that you were not at a financial disadvantage. You were guaranteed, in fact, what had been the average award for any student. And sure, you'll never know whether you might have gotten a larger award, um, but uh, we're, we're not trying to, you know, trick people into committing because they think they need the, the admissions benefit. This year, we upped that to $30,000 because the last year's average scholarship award was closer to $29,000. Um, and so because we've tied those two together, we, we made that adjustment. Um, Is that award regardless of need? Yes. And people can apply for need later in the spring, and we will increase awards. Um, so to answer your question, who should apply? People know people who know that Berkeley is absolutely their first choice. Like they don't need to know if they got into fill in the blank school. Um, they don't need an option to stay closer to home because there's something going on in their lives. They don't need a full ride, right? Because, or they aren't counting on one. And I, I tend to think of it as people who would be 
who would come to Berkeley kind of for nothing. And the fact that they can come to Berkeley and get a $90,000 scholarship spread over three years is just, oh, they're over the moon about that. I don't think that that's most people, right? Like, I don't think that most people can apply by an early decision and be like, oh, I'm just so relieved to be done on December 6th. And I don't need to know where I, if I would have gotten into those other 15 schools and I don't need to know if I would have gotten, you know, a full ride somewhere. So I think we've built a great program. And I also think that you should approach all binding early decision programs as an applicant with a lot of skepticism about whether it's the right thing for you. You were giving something up when you are, I mean, you were getting something, but you are giving something up. So that's a really important consideration. Right. Thank you. Oh, just to ask sure, your question ahead. about admit rate, it yeah. varies. Um, one oh, of really? the things about binding early decision is that, uh, well, A, I read them uh, exclusively. B, we read them as a group. It's not rolling. So Thanksgiving week, this is what I'm doing. And then ultimately I don't have a set number that I must or may not admit. So we've mm -hmm. admitted between 35 and 60. Um, okay. So it just depends on the caliber of the applicant and not on a fixed sort of number of terms of how many people were trying to enroll through that program. So last year, the number was, I think, lower than the overall admit rate, which was 12%. And so we took only 35 last year. Um, and I think the admit rate was about 10%. And this year, the admit rate is about 13, 13.5% um, because we took a larger group, although we also had 100 more applicants than in the past. So it varies, but it's kind of about the average admit rate, plus or minus a percentage point on either side. Right. So there's not, it doesn't sound like there's a distinct advantage or disadvantage for that matter. No, not at the all. The big advantage would be the, the guaranteed award and the opportunity to apply for additional need-based. And maybe the pleasantness of your holidays. Yeah, true. true that true. You can just tell people you're going to Berkeley Law and move on with your life. Exactly. Okay. Now, Berkeley Law accepts the LSAT or, or the GRE and occasionally the GMAT. Approximately what percentage of the applicant pool is applying with the GRE or the GMAT? Oh, it's small. I mean, that may be different. I, I should say this is the first year we've accepted the GRE kind of no questions asked. This cycle or this last cycle? cycle? This cycle. This oh, so cycle. you really don't have much data yet. Well, so we took the GRE in the past as a pilot program, like we still take the GMAT because the numbers mm -hmm. are so small. It's hard to do yeah. a study looking at how those people have actually performed, um, which is that we only took them from people who were applying to a joint degree program or who had taken the test in the last few years for the purpose of applying to another master's or PhD program. So that kept the numbers very, very small. So I can't tell you this year how many people will apply with the GRE. I expect it to be more. It's also right now my, uh, you know, we are going to have to look back at the cycle and sort of crunch the numbers. Right now, my my eyes are seeing a lot of GRE score reports, but it's also because we're requiring you to send a GRE score report, even if you have an LSAT, if you took the GRE, Got because they we're required for the ABA to report the scores of people who took either or both tests, even if we didn't use it for admission. So I'm seeing a ton of them, but they've if they're applying with LSAT, we really consider them LSAT test takers. Um, it's a slightly wonky, there'll, there'll be a little numbers crunching that has to uh, be done. And this question of how people will pure GRE applicants versus how many people were GRE plus LSAT applicants is unclear. 
at this stage. It'll be interesting data though to see if the two are equally predictive. I mean, you'll have, yeah. especially for those people that provide both. Yeah. Well, we have some the, really interesting comparisons there. Absolutely. And one of the things that's fascinating is sort of proponents of the of the GRE or just maybe of expanded test options. You know, they, they have some challenge. They don't think the LSAT is the end all be all right in a variety of ways. One of the and, and there I think there are some applicants who think I've heard the LSAT's really hard. Like I took the GRE. Well, maybe that's better. And what's fascinating is that the LSAT is just a score across all of the three sections that are scored mm-hmm. when you take the test. And the GRE, we get subsection scores. Mm-hmm. So actually there's more data for us, which could be good or not good for someone, <laughs> right? Like I could be like, well, you know, I, maybe I'm not so worried that you didn't score in the 97th percentile in the quantitative section, but I'm pretty worried that you only scored in the 50th percentile in writing. Right, right. And right. suddenly I know that, right. As opposed to the LSAT writing sample, which is unscored. So there are some interesting pros and cons at work and it has been fascinating to see more data. I bet. I bet. Do you have any suggestions for how applicants should choose which test to take and submit? I mean, I think my general advice right now, and obviously this is advice only good from 2023 to 2025, my general advice is that the the LSAT is the test that I would take. Um, If it were me or if I were advising my kid, there's plain reality is that not all schools accept the GRE. Um, and even far fewer except the GMAT. Amen. So if you're making a pure choice, unless your list of schools is exclusively GRE accepting schools, and unless you feel like you can get your hands on some data that helps you understand how your GRE score compares to people who've been admitted at that school with a GRE, which is also elusive, extremely yeah. elusive yeah. data, um, I, I think that it's your wise to take the LSAT. It's just more portable. Um, you could apply to a bunch of schools and then start to be like, well, this seems like a competitive cycle. I might want to apply to a few more schools. Uh, there's things you just can't know. And if there's th- that few more schools doesn't take the GRE, then you're signing up for the LSAT in, in January or in March. And that, that can be really problematic. Let's turn to the written parts of the application. What's your number one tip for the personal statement? Oh, uh... <laughs> am I asking hard questions or boring questions? No, no. Um, the reality is that there probably isn't a standardized rule. I mean, anything I can say that's like a number one rule is likely to be extremely unuseful. I said tip, like, not rule. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, I mean, like I'm going to say, keep it personal. I mean, that's not really extremely helpful in my opinion. Don't write about, you know, John Marshall or something like that. Yeah. I mean, don't write about, yes. Don't write about John Marshall. Don't write about your student in your you know, class that your second grade class that you're teaching, um, tell your story. I mean, so let me say this, uh, for us, particularly, I am not especially interested in a description of where you are right now and where you plan to go. I am, you should think about the personal statement as more like a proxy for an interview. I'm very interested in you telling me something about your journey to this point And with a certain amount of momentum that feels like you going to law school is the necessary and inevitable conclusion of that tale. So how you grew up, why you care about the things that you care about, the way that you see the world and how that lens has been shaped by personal experiences. You know, people can talk about their childhood. People can talk about something they did in college. People can talk about work, but ultimately we're trying to learn 
more about you. Um, the metaphor I sometimes use is sort of is like rounds of interviews. Um, you know, first interview for a job is like a look at your resume. Does this person seem qualified? Um, that's not your personal statement, right? Like that's other aspects of your application. And then I invite you in for a interview in my office and you're wearing a suit and it's very formal and I have your resume and I sort of am checking, do you have the skills? And there's sort of these generic questions like, tell me about a time you showed leadership. And those are important questions. Um, but if you got over that hurdle, the next thing I'd probably do is try to set up an hour where we could meet for coffee or you could meet with me and my team for lunch. And in that moment, we would you would not probably be dressed in a suit, nor would I. And we would be talking about very different things. Where did you grow up? Yeah, like why, you know, what what interests you about this? I'm just so curious about how you came to want to work in admissions. Tell me more about that. Like, you know, what, I mean, though, and that's the conversation that I think the personal statement is sort of attempting to simulate. So if you are extremely business-like and it's not particularly personal, you're really operating the space of that in office interview. And I just don't get to know you as well. And it would be unlikely if I were selecting someone for a job here that I would pick the person who I just didn't know as well. I, I sometimes refer to admissions deans as the keepers of the culture. We're responsible for 85% of the people in the building. And so we really care about kind of knowing who you are in some way. Um, and we don't have interviews, at least not at this time. So this is it. This is your shot. So if there's something that you need to say, say it. Well, you also give them a lot of opportunities in terms of the addenda. Yes. Um, there are several addenda. From what I could see, they're all optional with two exceptions. And that would be why Berkeley Law, if you're applying for the Public Interest Scholars Program and the Character and Fitness Addendum, if, you, if the applicant answered yes to any of the character and fitness questions or previously matriculated at another law school. Outside of these specific situations where they are required, do you encourage applicants to submit addenda? And are there any addenda that you prefer to see? Yeah, I mean, I would maybe break the group that you're referencing up into two categories um, or, or three. Um, one would be optional statements. And for us, that's the wide Berkeley statement and the um, diversity statement, which is really right. what will you contribute in terms of diversity. Those are very helpful as supplements, not supplanting, but supplements to your personal exactly. statement. Yeah. So your personal statement should be the foundation and everything else is just sort of like more helpful information that surrounds it and enhances or deepens our understanding of some elements of it. But we really welcome, I mean, I really welcome, I enjoy reading um, either or both of those. Our personal statement is up to four pages, which is fairly unusual. So I will say that there are people who will write a four-page personal statement that does the work of also answering the questions of why Berkeley and what will they bring in terms of diversity and how has that shaped their viewpoint in their personal statement? So that's why they're optional. It's not a strict requirement, but especially if you've written a shorter personal statement that you're maybe using for more than one school, I would encourage you for us to write the optional statements. Then there obviously are required addenda, character and fitness, prior matriculation. And then there is also an optional addendum, um, which we prompt for that says, if you don't believe that you're academic record, GPA, or LSAT scores, test scores are indicative of your potential for success. Please tell us why and what is. And then there's just the world of like broadly addenda, which is things I didn't ask for and you want to send me. Um, 
So, you know, if you, if you think about it that way and you sort of narrowly constrain addendas, things I didn't ask for, but you want to send me, that list is probably pretty short. Um, I don't actually really want to receive like your honors thesis. And so you would be surprised um, or, you know, your photography portfolio or something along those lines, it's just not going to be helpful in my analysis. But I do think that if there's something that we should know, especially when understanding something related to your work experience or lack thereof, your academic history and your test scores, that you really should find a place to put it. And in all likelihood, that's an addendum um, that is not taking up space in any of your other statements. Okay, great. Thank you. Do you like to see experience that is closely related to, to law, um, like working in a law, legal office or legal clinic, for example? Um, Notice that most of your matriculating students are 24, so most of them would be. Yeah, actually, that's a that's a that's lower than it has been for the last five years. It's almost always 25. Oh, wow. um, so, yeah, I mean, we like to see experience. I have no preference for it being law related. I think there's a tendency to think that going into like being a paralegal or doing an internship at a law firm is somehow going to be like the cherry on top of your application. It's just going to make the difference. And that's just not the case. Oftentimes when you're at a law firm, what you're really doing is like very mundane, not very interesting work whatsoever. Other times it might be quite dynamic and interesting. Fundamentally, we really do like people with experience. I don't care if it's experience accrued in like undergraduate. So there's no requirement that it be postgraduate experience, but have you been busy? Like, what do you do with your time? Is it leadership? Is it campus involvement? Is it helping your family run a business? Um, you know, what, what beyond being a student do you do? And that kind of goes to that second question I referenced, what will you contribute beyond being a good student? For a lot of people that is postgraduate experience. Sometimes that's also in getting a master's degree or um, getting a teaching credential. Um, sometimes it's people who've, you know, traveled, taught English in another country, just taken a break from law school. Mainly I'm very, very interested in knowing that the class is going to be full of those kinds of people who have a track record of engagement um, and who are the kind of people who go like, oh, that's a, that's a really big challenge. And they talk about it. And then they also say, let's do something about it, right? Like yeah. that's kind of the Berkeley ethos, like let's do something about it. And so demonstrating that you're someone in the past who has had sort of that draw to do something is helpful, but you could be a 20 year old undergraduate who fulfills that. Absolutely. And you could be someone who has been a, um, working in, you know, organic farming and community organizing for three years and has realized that the way they want to make change in the world is to get a law degree. That's also very reasonable. Great. Thank you. Great answer. You have a JD. So you obviously applied once upon a time to law school. Um, Before the internet. So it was very relaxing. <laughs> it, was, it was very different then. Um, what would you today tell your applicant self if you could? What did you not realize that you know you would have you would have liked to know? Um, that's a good question. So I, I, I joked about not like being before the internet, not actually true. We did have the internet, but, um, but it was paper applications. What we didn't have was like the world of chat rooms and stuff like that. So, um, 
what I often, the reverse of that, what I often say is what I would tell people that I didn't know at the time, but really worked out for me, <laughs> which is don't listen to people who, you know, tell you that your chances are non-existent or that you have no right applying to like that school. Um, I had, I, I'm like, I had the benefit of ignorance, right? I just applied to the schools that I thought that I would love to be there. I like what they offer. Their faculty seem great. Um, their programs are a good fit for me. And I went for it. Um, it worked out fine. And I just think there's so many people now whose lists are constrained by the, their perception or other people's perception of whether or not they can be admitted. If I had to tell myself something back then, it, um, it actually probably would have been not to go to sort of be just as interested in schools around ranking as frankly I was, which is ironic. You know, we, we do grow and change Linda. Um, yes. Isn't but, that um, good? Isn't that it good? Is, it is a good thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's like me telling people we're stressed about jobs. Like I promise you your first legal job will not be your last legal job. <laughs> it's not if you're not, you're not signing a contract forever. Right. Um, so, you know, I had some options and I you know, chose the school, which is a great school, but a school, I think at the time that was number two in the country. And um, I had a really lovely time, but I also, you know, many things about legal education has changed this a long time ago, as you sort of put as your caveat in the beginning. Um, I was talking about myself, by the way. Yes, yes. There was, you know, there was like one clinic, right? Mm -hmm. um, right. And partly that just because experiential ed was not such a big thing, right. but also there were um, very few people that grew up in a very low income household, which I did. And I didn't really think about that as a variable. And it was a little bit challenging for me to suddenly be in an environment with people who, um, you know, they were third generation blank school graduates. So it was just, there were some variables like I wish I had thought about and sort of kicked the tires a little bit more around what I was looking for. Part of that, to be clear, it was my own lack of experience, ironically, I applied to law school at 21 and went directly right. from undergraduate, sure. Sure. Um, which is that was the, norm the, ex then. the experience I would, the, the advice I would give to anyone now would be take some time off. Like law school will still be there. You'll only be a better applicant for waiting a little bit. But, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't ask some of the questions that I now try really hard to counsel people to ask, even if it means they don't pick Berkeley. Um, what, who do you want to be around for three years? Um, you know, what kind of environment are you looking for? Uh, where do you see yourself ultimately ending up, et cetera? So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I just would have been less like, it felt very strange to even contemplate at the time saying no to a school that was the, that school. And that probably is true for a lot of people now, but I had many other really good options. And I think if I had made a less reflexive sort of automatic decision, you know, I might've had a different experience. Right. Wonderful answer. We're running out of time. I just want to ask you really quick. Is there anything you would have liked me to ask? Oh, your questions are fantastic. Thank you. Um, so I don't, I don't know that I have anything. I think one question that should get asked more in general is, are your students happy? And I cannot say that every student at Berkeley, I mean, it's also finals. It's like dead weeks. <laughs> it's a terrible time to ask. Nobody's happy right now. Um, but I, I, I think that, you know, we, we produce 
as an industry, far too many unhappy attorneys. I think there was a study that sort of said like 70% of attorneys wouldn't recommend the profession. Um, mm -hmm. And I think if we figured out a way, whether it's through rankings or elsewhere, to think about how we determine whether students are happy, even if things are really hard and they're challenged, and if schools created more programs that were focused on sort of wellness and wholeness throughout them that we would be better served not just as legal educators but as members of the profession um, that is an incredibly important profession and that requires a certain amount of stamina and stamina can be fed by anxiety or can be fed by joy and I think we should work for it to be fed more by joy. It's a great response. Thank you so much. We are out of time. You've been extremely generous and your responses have been great. I want to thank you very much for joining me and sharing your insider perspective. Where can listeners learn more about Berkeley Law? I would go to our main website, uh, www.law.berkeley.edu. It'll land on, an, on a news page and you can find admissions certainly, but I would start with the main site and poke around and see what we have to offer. Wonderful. Thank you again. And thank you listeners for also joining me for this wonderful interview with Dean Alvarez, Dean of Admissions and Financial Aid at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. We're going to include links in the show notes at exhibit.com slash 504 to Berkeley Law's website, as well as to other resources that may be helpful to you. Quick reminder, don't miss the law school admissions quiz. Find out if you are really ready to apply and competitive at your target schools. Take the quiz at exhibit.com slash law dash quiz today. This is Admission Straight Talk produced by Accepted, and I am your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>